Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Cambridge Stronger as we celebrate Pride Month. I'm Amy Weber, CEO of Cambridge and host of Cambridge Stronger, a podcast where culture counts and values matter most. In recognition of Pride Month, we've teamed up with our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee to bring listeners a podcast episode featuring Frances Toller. We believe building a diverse and inclusive work environment is more important than ever, particularly in the financial services industry. We hope we can help provide awareness around diversity in our industry and discuss ways that we can all help create a more inclusive environment. With that, I'd like to welcome our guest, CEO of Toller Financial Group, Francis Toller. We are honored to have Fran as a member of our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council, as well as a Cambridge Stronger financial professional, which we'll talk about shortly. Welcome to the show, Fran. Thank you, Amy. Pleasure to be here. So excited to give our audience the opportunity to hear about you and your goals and your journey. If you've listened to any of my podcasts, that's where I'd love to start. So let's talk about how you got into the financial services arena. Excellent. Well, I have a little bit of a circuitous, unconventional path. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to spend a couple minutes on my earlier adult life because it's really informed and enriched how I approach financial services. So it isn't just irrelevant, but It might seem that way on a resume. So right out of college, my first job was at a place that's now out of business that was called the Women's Community Bakery. In Washington, DC, this was a collectively run all women whole grain bakery. And this was a project that had been around for about a decade before I joined it in 1984, maybe not quite a decade, close to that. And I was mentored by some incredible, powerful women who had learned how to run a business and were dedicated to imparting all the business information to the entire group. There wasn't like it was as a collective, it was relatively non-hierarchical decision-making. And what that meant was then everybody needed to be educated. So I learned business analysis. I learned what a break-even point was. I learned fixed versus variable expenses. I'm 21 years old. And I learned also, I asked to be mentored in bookkeeping. So I ended up being over the period of a year, uh, learned how to be a full charge bookkeeper, which was something I did later and kind of gave me confidence on the business side. And it was just an amazing experience. We had a saying that three women working together can do anything. So we had to manage like 55 gallon drums of malt syrup and honey and oil and you know, it's a very physical task making, I don't know, well over a thousand loaves of bread a day and delivering them. I learned how to drive a delivery truck. So it was an outstanding job for me um, and really gave me a sense of empowerment and interest in business, but not from a like, how much money can I make, but how can business create community? How can business like embody human ingenuity and collective will in a way that enriches all the people who touch it, not just the people who own it. So it really was um, like my next job really was an outgrowth of the cultural change movements of the 60s and 70s and very, very formative for me. So from then I, um, I, I had a child as a single mom in 87, so just three years after graduating from college, and I needed a little bit less physical job because let me tell you, that was a very physical job. 
So I uh, used my bookkeeping, got a job with an environmental group, um, and then from there catapulted what became my first real career, which was as a midwife. So I began volunteering at a place called the Washington Free Clinic, which was a free clinic that grew out of the sort of street hippie movement of the 60s and 70s and needing to provide healthcare. It started as a venereal disease clinic in Georgetown in DC and moved. By this point, it was actually at the church I went to as a child. Uh, go figure, funny coincidences. So I was associated with the Washington Free Clinic from 86 to 2001, and it was my, my everything home. Um, I learned so much there about giving care and service to people, doing it in a way that meets them where they are, um, really how to be a service provider as part of your own spiritual growth, I would say, was a component of it. How do we work with folks who are largely really from what you could term the underclass who have very little access to resources, whether they were US citizens or recent immigrants. And I was focused on maternal and child health care. So I trained to become a midwife while I was there. And I ran a program that incorporated care for midwives, nurse practitioners, doctors, lay health workers that we trained, translators, nutritionists. And at a tender age, I was ultimately responsible for this large program serving thousands of women every year. And it was incredibly meaningful and really difficult work. Like every week was a miracle. Like, can we make it happen? We're out of paper towels and we have no money. Like, what are we going to do? You know, so it was, there was an adventure side of just running a free clinic on a shoestring. And our motto was like the best care in the world uh, for no money. You know, so how do we provide really outstanding care to people? So it was inspiring. Some of my best friends in the world I worked with there, you know, I absolutely loved the work. And when I became fully trained as a midwife, I also opened a private practice doing home births. So that was a, also a very central part of my life. And during that time, I uh, married such as we could at the time a woman um, we couldn't legally marry and we had a second child so now we had the two of them and uh, was raising my kids making no money um, but having a great life <laughs> and really loving my work at the free clinic so that ethos of inclusivity of cultural competence and of sort of patients rights like we had this founding principle that that what you write in the chart shouldn't be secret. Like the patient should be participating in their care. If you're evaluating them for domestic abuse or alcoholism, like this is an open conversation. So there was a there was an ethos and a spirit there of you know non being non hierarchical. The the provider was not better than the patient, even if they were poor or didn't speak English or were in a lousy situation for any number of reasons. So. Very, very formative for me, as you can imagine. But then in the year 2000 or so, um, honestly, like a little voice came to me and said, time for a change. And I was like, I really love what I'm doing. And it was like, nope, time for a change. So I started investigating other careers and thought about taking the bookkeeping. And I thought, if I work in a back office doing bookkeeping under fluorescent lights all day, that's it. That's the end of my life. I can't do it. 
I need to have independence and agency. I need to have a client relationships. Like here, I've spent this first part of my career developing trusted, deep relationships with patients that are meaningful to me and to them. And I can't give that up. Like, so I was flailing around a bit <clears throat> and thought, and I didn't have the money or the time to go back to school. I, I mean, when I say I wasn't making money, I was making like $35,000 a year, right? So this is like, I was not making money, <laughs> but I had a mortgage and kids and like, you know, this was serious. My partner made a similar amount. We were not well off. And I got, I heard from a, an alumni from my college who worked at the Guardian Life Insurance Company, and he encouraged me to come interview. And I ended up joining, like after great deliberation and discernment, joining there. And uh, yeah, so that's how I got into financial services. And that was in 2001. Um, and, you know, so 22 years later, I find myself here. And I can, you know, go through my path towards independence, which was what I wanted all along. But, you know, I think everybody knows hanging out a shingle for being an independent person when you have no knowledge, no money, no time, two kids, a mortgage, like it's not plausible. And those- How many years in between before you took so the leap? So from 2001, to 2007, I, I was building my business at The Guardian and I really considered going independent. And the next year I got severely ill and I was sick for a decade. So I hung on to my business, but I think if I'd gone independent, I, I, I don't know. Of course, I don't know. But I was very ill from 2009 on, um, really like can hardly talk about it. and. In 2012, I moved to New York Life, but I needed to wait until I felt like I was on the road to recovering my health. And in 2015, I started to feel that way. And that summer, uh, I think Kathy Else was my recruiter. I talked to you guys, to Commonwealth and to Satera and a couple others. And I decided Cambridge was the one. And then I decided I wasn't doing it right away. So, you know, it's just, I think, I'm not the first person who came over who maybe took a few twists and turns. And I decided I wasn't coming over right away, but I now I knew that it was going to be Cambridge. The message I heard from you that I think is really inspiring is I think if we're listening, everybody has those little voices, but there's several times in that life journey you just described that you really had to listen to the little voice because you had another, you know, something else maybe pulling you a certain direction, but it's all about the timing sometimes. I think it really is. And I think, um, you know, not to get, I'm not specifically religious, but I do feel that we're guided and I feel that we disregard that little voice at our peril. And I think that it can um, sound a lot of different ways. And sometimes it sounds you know, very specific. And sometimes it's very general where we just know something doesn't feel right and we've got to have a change. And we're just going to be uncomfortable until we figure that change out. And I, I think that learning to adjust to that discomfort, not so much that it's a way of life, but so that you say, I accept, I accept that this discomfort is the path of growth. And when I'm figure out what I'm supposed to figure out now, I'll be a little less uncomfortable for a little while. Yeah. And, you know, 
it's very hard getting into this business. I mean, my joke is, you know, I cried at least twice a week on the way home from work in the first couple of years, at least. Um, now, you know, rejection is just not really my thing, right? So I think there's an emotional growth path for people in this career that can be feel quite steep if you don't have a lot of financial and logistical support. And for me, even though I had a wide social network that I was able to, you know, bring people in who already trusted and knew me, it's still very hard. You really feel like everything's on the line year after year, like it doesn't go away very quickly. And I think that that's really tough, but, um, you know, I'm grateful that I made it. You and did make it. I yes. did. You're very successful. Congratulations. <laughs> Um, and that brings us full circle. So let's talk a little bit. You founded your firm, Toller Financial Group, in 2015. Is that right? That oh, I, used, right? I sort of founded the name some years before that, but that's when I went independent and really, like I, I had the name and the website and everything while I was at New York Life, but but that doesn't count because I wasn't free to- You weren't using it and you weren't free. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I got you. So a part of your focus is serving the needs of specific communities. Um, they may include politically progressive, LGBTQ, racial minorities. I also read on your bio that you're starting to shift your focus to sustainable investing, which um, I'd like to hear a little bit about as well on how you make that decision or how you, what's that shift look like? Um, provide some examples of how your firm provides support to those communities. What does that look like? So it really just um, comes out of my natural market, right? So these are my friends. When, one of the things when I got into financial services was learning that, like, not only did I not want to go to any of these people, but <laughs> no offense, all the rest of y'all, but neither did my friends. And that my whole large, multi-layered, extended friend group was largely unserved by the financial services community. There was a significant sort of political bias when I would bring my friends in for financial planning. So the way that we're inclusive is just that th these are these are our people. Like these are my friends. These are my friends' friends and my friends' friends' neighbors. And um, so it's a welcoming atmosphere. It's inclusive language, but it isn't just like something I studied. It's like understanding the values that there's in DC, there's a, there's an enormous, there's a million adults in DC who would rather go to a firm like mine than many of the existing financial firms. They, they want someone who speaks their language, who holds their values, who speaks fluently and comfortably with them. Um, and who isn't like their token, anything. And they don't want to, Nobody wants to be patronized. Sustainable investing has actually been part of my firm since its founding, since 2001, when I first got licensed in securities. Um, it was a smaller part in the first few years till I had my 65. I was kind of like in an American funds shop. You know, we like, I mean, it's a great place to start. Great company, not, you know. Yep. My friends were like, we want sustainable investments, like from year two. So I had to learn it. And it um, it has, so it's actually been a steady part of my business from the beginning. And the increasing quality of what's available in that site 
in that zone, plus the some of the options that I have through Cambridge that I didn't used to have before, particularly on the separately managed account side. And now that I'm a member of the ESG Council, now the Social and Sustainable Investing, as well as DEI. Thank you. But to me, it's just fundamental. Like capitalism is this amazing force for manifesting human problem solving. But left to its own devices, it chews people up and spits them out <laughs> and the environment. And there needs to be a balance. There needs to be a healthy balance. Just like in a family, you need a healthy power dynamic. You don't need just like, I just feel like capitalism without social accountability is, is just utterly unhelpful in the long run and absolutely out of harmony. Like you want to go back to kind of ancient ideas of harmony. There's got to be a collectivist benefit side to all of that application of capital and ingenuity. And that's all to me, social and sustainable investing is, is saying we want this utilization of capital to raise the material standards and the intellectual and social standards of our world, but let's not do it at the absolute expense of a group of people or the environment or anything else. And that, like, I can't understand why everybody isn't interested in it. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's okay. <laughs> like, I have my own biases, right? Like, of course we want a capitalism that treats workers with respect, because when you don't, you get populism and then you get fascism. Like, let's be for real. Things don't go well when you harshly, like, set aside a whole group of people's needs. It is not in the long-term interests of our great-grandchildren. And that's what I care about. Like, let's make something sustainable. Sustainable is very meaningful to me. It means that we're on a track where like we're creating economic systems and social systems that serve people a little better than they do right now. So that's that's why that's like my little passionate thing on that. Um, so it's always been a part of what I do. And, you know, the gay community, the lesbian community and all of its endless diversity and all of our separate little flags. I'm bisexual. I'm, I always have known that since I've known I was sexual at 16 or whatever. Um, I've had long-term, I'm currently in a relationship with a man. I've had long-term relationships with men and women. Um, and so for me, the community of people who, you know, have different sexuality expressions, different gender expressions, this has just always been part of my home base. They're not different or weird. They're part of the, you know, they're one of the flowers in the garden to me. Like, that's just like, that's just how my garden looks. So well, and like you talked about earlier, you picked up very early that it was an underserved community. Um, yeah, I mean, if I was going to be like uh, sort of, you could be quite exploitative about this because you know the concept of like blue ocean marketing, like go where other people aren't. Frankly, I felt like my entire twenty plus years has been nothing but blue ocean marketing because. 
so many people, and I talked, I've been in a million meetings with these people who look down on the county I live in, who look down on the people's values who I cherish, who look down on the, you know, all the sort of weirdness that they see my practice representing. And, and that's their own loss. You know, these, like, <laughs> I'm, I don't understand it. Um, I mean, these are the people that are dear to me. Like this comes from love for me. Like I love my community and I want to create a firm that does the best possible job taking care of them because some of them are rich and some of them are poor, but we try to serve them all the best we can because I don't want any of them to suffer the like humiliation and discouragement of having screwed up their finances. And you can do that whether you're well off or not. And, you know, that's really how I see it. We should be of service to our neighbors and whether they're farmers or artists or, you know, investment bankers, like we should be in our community and guiding them. And my community are these people. So that's why I'm there. That's great. Is that what led you to decide to spend some time? I will admit you'll have to educate me a little bit about what that time commitment would look like, but your firm is a certified LGBT business enterprise. Tell our listeners what that means and tell me what that means because I also don't know and I love learning on this. Awesome. So everyone's familiar probably with the concept of supplier diversity. So like if you're going to build a bridge in your town, they're going to put out bids and um, bridge contractors who are owned, a woman-owned company or a racial minority-owned company, are there's certain, every state, every federal like big bidding process has a certain amount of supplier diversity. They're required or encouraged to uh, include. So LGBT is not considered a federally protected class the way uh, racial status, gender, and uh, religion, and whatever. I'm not a civil rights lawyer, but you know, those are like federally protected. But back in 2002, a couple of folks realized that there was really a place in the supplier diversity world for LGBTQ-owned firms. And so they started the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, which had been around earlier. So I'm getting the history wrong. I'm no historian. But in 2002, they, they initiated a process to certify LGBT-owned businesses, so LGBT business enterprises. And since this time, now uh, over a third of Fortune 500 companies actually recognize this certification and they partner with NGLCC to include LGBT business enterprises in their diverse supply chain list. So it's not 100%, but it's a pretty good number for 20 years of this. And, and there's over a million LGBTQ business owners in this country, and there's well over a trillion dollar that flows through those businesses. And so right now, I think they have, uh, you know, I don't know how many people are certified. I was first certified in 2012 when I was at New York Life. And then part of that whole illness thing, my certification lapsed. I just couldn't, didn't have the bandwidth. And I recertified, uh, I don't know, 2017, maybe something like that. So uh, all it is, is it's 50% or more ownership of just like the other supplier diversity groups, 50% or more ownership by someone who's in that community. 
and they, they do feel exhaustive. You know, they're they're not, you know, they're not looking for people who are cheating. They're looking for people who sincerely come from that position. Yeah, so that's what it yeah. is. That's now, funny. I haven't really benefited from supplier diversity stuff just because in my business model, I don't do retirement plans and four hundred one ks like. I think I could, if I had gone in that direction, this could be a useful thing to sort of leverage, but I just, I, I've just kept my focus on individuals and families for the most part. So I've never really gone into that world, but I think that could have been an opportunity, but I, uh, I didn't really want to do that work. So I didn't. <laughs> yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Um, and just based on your history that you've described thus far in our conversation pretty good at figuring out where you want to go and how to get there so that's right that's awesome talk a little bit about your team or you know the community you've got supporting you and then um secondly core values how does this all play into the establishment of your firm and how do you communicate those types of things yeah so my team right now is um five full-time employees including myself it's been really exciting watching it grow. Uh, I've grown, I think, sixfold since I came to Cambridge, roughly, and revenue. Congratulations. <laughs> I saw that. Premier club away, right? Woohoo! And also in staff. Like, I came over here with a part-time support person. Um, and it's, you know, shortly after that, I kind of made a 15-year plan. So I turned 60 this year, and I am five years into my 15-year plan which is to create something that's lasting. Um, not, not just like out of an ego need, like I need a legacy, but more out of like, I've identified a huge gap <laughs> in who gets served. And I think I bring uh, really important thought leadership in terms of how we serve people from all of my previous mentors throughout my life. And I'd like to bring that to financial services and have the conversation be, you know, one that really meets my natural market with integrity and with the sense of wholeness. So that's really what I'm, where people feel like they belong, they feel seen. And so that's really where I'm trying to guide my team. Um, so it's been really exciting. Um, it turns out like, leading a team as a founder of an organization is something you're not born knowing how to do. So I make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I, I struggle, I sweat the details. Um, but, you know, we've been growing at a 25 plus percent rate pretty much every year. And we're looking to continue to add people. Um, and I'm looking to transition out over the next decade. Um, I don't, want to be managing people's money when I'm over 70. I don't mind continuing relationships and having a role, but I don't think I should have the kind of responsibility that I have today. I feel like that is, uh, it just makes me feel uncomfortable about keeping that much responsibility as I age, not knowing at what rate I will age, right? You know, these, <laughs> this is not, like you don't get given a map of the future. So I feel like I want a really secure thing in place that my clients know they have a home they're really comfortable with and really well taken care of by people they trust and all of that before I develop a problem that takes me out of it. You know, I, I don't 
I, I was sick enough that I don't have the luxury of, and I'm, I'm well now, but I, I don't have the luxury of pretending that you, things don't happen. Um, I'm extremely acutely aware of how bad things happen and, and take you out of the game to a certain degree. So I'm just trying to put structures in place that make that work. So that's my team. They're awesome. Julie and Brandon are my other two sort of fully independent advisors. They're both career changers. Brandon from being an accountant, Julie from being a sexual and reproductive health educator, um, both wonderful previous careers. I've got a couple of aspiring advisors and a office manager. And, you know, so we're just that's great doing our thing. Do you talk to your clients about this? Do you explain to them that, that you've got a team? All the time. I mean, you can imagine as the little bit that you know me that I would tend to over-disclose rather than under-disclose. <laughs> so they all know I'm in the five years into a 15-year plan. They all know I'm 60 years old. They all know I was sick before and that I've got it together now. They all know that I want to create something that takes care of them, but allows me to step back. And that I think that that's the responsible thing to do. I've watched one of the first things I did when I came to Cambridge, you all invited me to the um, 2015 Ignite that was in DC, which was quite formative because uh, I, one story I like to tell is I've been in a, I'd already been in the business, right, for long enough that I went to the big session and, and you and Eric were up on stage and Eric gets up to speak and everybody, there's like a little reverent hush that goes over. And I was like, well, this is different. And then he starts saying stuff about staying independent and like inspiring stuff. And you know what I hear all around me? People muttering, yep, that's right. That's what we're doing. It was so different, Amy. That's great to hear. I had not heard that story before. Yeah, I continue to hear that. And um, that really made me uh, feel like Cambridge's deeper goals in mind were aligned. I love your core values, what you guys have put together as a firm. I thought about copying them. That would have been easier, but you know, no, I'm just, <laughs> but I love the flexibility. I love the kindness. Like I think um, I talk about that a lot. I talk about the kindness and the flexibility a lot with my team. You know, those are like giving people the benefit of the doubt. Um, obviously we're in like this bizarre, like kind of sick regulatory environment that's like punish first, explain later, but we don't have to take that on. We don't have to live our lives that way. We have to deal with it. We have to manage it, but we don't have to be them. And uh, so the commitment that I hear from Cambridge on that score is very meaningful to me because I choose to not live my life letting that kind of energy in deeply. I think that's great advice, very inspiring, um, particularly at a time where I think we've got a lot of panic out there about current independent contractor status and all of that. And um, yeah, I'm scared. I'm not any different than all your other advisors, right? I'm facing the same thing and I'm frustrated. That said, having been in the business over 35 years myself, it's, um, it's all about I guess just continuing to have the confidence that this is a resilient industry and it's a really important part of the industry. And one way or another, once we have rule, the rules, 
I'm not saying litigation won't happen. That probably will, but we'll, we'll figure it out. We will figure it out together collectively, but I wish we didn't have to spend our time and energy doing it. Let's talk about something more fun. How about you are a member of our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council, as we mentioned earlier. So thank you for that. Uh, we really appreciate your contributions already in the area. But how does that role, talk about your experience on that council, and, and then how does that translate to what you do as the CEO of your own firm? So I'm newer on the council, I guess maybe, I don't track time very well, but maybe a year, maybe less. Yes, yeah, I think that's Last true. Summer, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the way it tracks with being a CEO is just that I'm trying to shift my attention a little bit more towards leadership. Um, and it's hard. I'm very much in the trenches, you know, uh, on a good day, um, I'm not opening the mail or restocking the coffee pods or looking for the lost file, but on a bad day, I still am <laughs> like there's seven of us or six of us. There's not like 300 of us. So I'm very much in the trenches. I still see 20 clients a week, and that's a lot um, to also run a firm, even a, a small firm like mine. So, <clears throat> you know, my interest in the two councils I'm on is to continue to develop, like, being articulate about the ways in which I want to show up as a leader in this area. Um, I do believe that financial services um, can, can be better than it is. Um, and I, Cambridge is certainly the, the significantly better side of it. And, but there's a lot of just dreck out there and I want to provide a model that just contains different parts, more thought leadership, um, more actual leadership, and I'm very torn because I literally love my clients, right? But if I keep seeing 20 clients a week, it's going to be hard to do much else. Like That's just hard. Right. And, <laughs> and your family and um, your volunteering, which we'll talk about here in a minute. I mean, there's only so many days of the week and hours of the day and all of that. Precisely. <laughs> but we really do appreciate you taking the time to, to help us continue our journey to be better at Cambridge. So thank you. You do a lot of advocating. I said, I just talked about volunteering when it comes to supporting the LGBTQIA plus, if that's, <laughs> and all, however you, however you described that earlier, I'm sure I left someone out, unfortunately, but the plus hopefully helps a little bit, but that community, you're on the board of Rainbow Families. Yeah. I rolled off the board. I did my maximum number of years, but that organization is still dear to my heart. I was working with it before I was on the board and I still am. They support LGBTQ families, uh, which mostly means those adults are in that community. But increasingly, we have uh, folks coming to us whose kids are queer or trans or whatever and want an inclusive space. Um, it's a wonderful organization and weirdly, it practically one of a kind. There's very few of them around the world. Um, we used to joke on the board that we were planning on global domination, which just meant really that like we'd love to have this model be something that can be replicated in other communities because it can be very, very lonely to have like two lesbian friends and most of the people your kids hang out with don't understand you. And, you know, in different communities around the country, it's very, it can be lonely. And, you know, unlike being a racial minority, like every one of your advisor families could have a gay person in it, right? 
And I think one of the unique aspects of gender and sexuality uh, differences is how things are presenting right now in the world with these Gen Zers who are kind of all over the map, bless their little hearts, but um, they are fully all over the map. And so just about every family is having some kind of conversation, whether it's a welcoming conversation or an angry one or a frightened one, they're practically all having these conversations. And I feel like those of us who have been in this world need to help normalize this for everybody else. We need to say, yeah, this is okay. Like this person who you love, who just told you about the ways they're different from how you thought they were, like this, this isn't a threat to you. This is, isn't about you, A. And B, like you can open your heart and your mind to this and find out what's great about them. Um, so like, I, I really believe that that, that this is the time for our community to help people with that language, with that sense of inclusivity. I did a little research just on that particular organization when I was preparing a little bit, and I need to forward that name on to some family members of my own. So thank yeah. you for bringing that into my awareness. Well, Rainbow Families has an annual conference every year, and it's both, it's hybrid, it's in person and remote, so that people can attend sessions and learn more and get support. And they have classes, they have support groups, they have a class called Maybe Baby for parents uh, that are prospective parents, which I teach a section in on the financial stuff every time. Yeah, that's great. So Thank it you. Is, it's, a, it's a great organization. Um, I'm sort of looking for my next board position. I have other interests as well. So I have lots of uh, possibilities that I'm sort of toying with. That's great. Thank you for giving back for sure. And that's a great segue into not the only reason we're here, but one of the reasons June is designated as Pride Month and we want to celebrate that. So are there any special activities in your office that uh, you take part in to recognize Pride Month? You know, it's a great question. And I was just talking about it at a staff meeting last week. Like we don't really, we don't usually go to like a festival. Um, you know, we usually will have one or two special webinars on the topic. We don't, it's like, it's Pride year for us. So we don't, <laughs> I was, I actually was just going to say that I, I, um, I respect and, and enjoy having these conversations about the months, whatever that may be, but because I love celebrating just diversity and inclusion in particular, but most of the time when I ask these questions, the answer is, you know, we kind of do it all year long. <laughs> Pride month is great. And it's lovely. I'm just not a big festival person. Um, and, you know, we maybe we talked, we talked about maybe doing something a little bit more this year, but um, we don't usually like get out there and march or get out there and have a table, but we could. But it sounds like you spend a lot of time all year round uh, celebrating and you're there for them. So that's, yeah. that's the important thing. Yes. And it's, it's like, we used to have some real expertise in this area but with the passage of the Marriage Equality Act, it's interesting how the sort of legal and financial expertise, one of my jokes with a really wonderful local resource, a lesbian attorney, Michelle Zavos, who just, just retired, who's led uh, LGBTQ civil rights stuff for decades, very wonderful career. We used to joke how we had more of an expertise level when there was more of a difference, but with marriage equality, 
thankfully, you know, we don't have to be quite so crafty to try to recreate the legal and social protections of marriage. You know, yeah. not, that is under threat here and there, but I, I think hopefully the tide has turned on that um, because, you know, people deserve, <laughs> people deserve those civil uh, protections and you don't have to agree with them. You know, you, there's all kinds of people that I don't agree with, but I don't interfere with their ability to get married. You know, <laughs> trust me, there's lots and lots of people I don't agree with, but I don't go around telling them whether they can have kids, whether they can own property, whether they can keep their job or get married. Like that's, they're, they're human beings. All of that is stuff they should be able to do. And I feel that it's just sort of obvious to return the favor. So this has been a great conversation, but we are nearing the end of the podcast. I always like to take some time to talk about hobbies and activities. I feel like your professional life merges pretty much on an hourly basis with your hobbies and activities, potentially. Um, it, all, it all seems to fit together just based on what we've discussed so far. But talk talk a little more about your family. Um, what do you do in your free time? I think we talked about the fact that you have two children out there. Yeah, I have two wonderful girls, uh, Sophia who is out in Seattle working for a farmland trust, helping organic farmers get easements and grants to stay farming. Um, she's amazing. And my other amazing daughter, Hazel, works here in DC. We, she bought a house last summer. She's 35. Like I, my kids are not young, I'm 35 and 28, but they're both fully awesome. Um, I, really have a lot of interests outside finance. So I'm going to just say that finance isn't really a particular hobby of mine, but I'm interested in the life sciences and I'm a naturalist and a birder. And I spend most of my time when I'm not working, hiking or camping or studying the web of life, which really interests me. Um, so like yesterday, I was out in the Shenandoahs and all day, you know, I try, I, I would prefer to kind of be out in nature most of the time or uh, drinking wine with my friends. Like those are kind of the two. Hey, they go together. They do go together sometimes. And then I'm involved in quite a lot of local environmental groups. I founded a small group called Friends of Dueling Creek and uh, was on a, and worked some with Anacostia Watershed Society, who's an organization that I support. Um, they you know, the Anacostia is sort of like the lesser known river of the two rivers that come together in DC. And so the Anacostia watershed uh, has a lot of really unique features and um, is a little bit of a kind of forgotten river. So there's those of us who are trying to clean it up and make it a functioning ecosystem. And so I'm uh, involved in all that and you know love love that work and just love to be out in the field and um that's really i need a lot of that to counterbalance staring at computer screens and particularly in the last three years doing 90 percent of my meetings by zoom has been very stressful in that regard like i really like seeing people in person <laughs> is that coming back for you are they coming back nope. in no nope. They are not. I know in some parts of the country, they've long since come back, but it's not fear of disease. It's that uh, this is an urban area. We have a lot of traffic. You've been here. It's a pain in the neck. And they're like, mm, the only people who come in pretty much are over 60. Pretty, pretty much that's the case. So 
Yeah, I think I, that'll be the case for, I think it's the new, I, it's an overused term, but then it's the new norm, right? It's, it's where that will be. Well. I mean, I feel like, you know, this is important to business decisions, like how big of an office we need. And I don't know the answer to that. I feel like I want to give it another year <clears throat> or two, but I just sort of think people aren't going to come back. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, Fran, thank you for coming to see me today and uh, share all of this really interesting and inspirational information about yourself. Pleasure. I, I also have enjoyed getting to know you better. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing you later. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. 